Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Last week, Jason preached an excellent, excellent message from verses 1 to 8 about how we should forbear with one another, absorb wrongs done against us within the body of Christ, not seek to retaliate, but to love one another even as God has loved us. Today we're going to continue, and we're going to continue by looking at verses 9 to 11 together. This is what Paul says. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. If you have ever traveled internationally, you know how important it is to have a passport. Without a passport, you can't even travel outside of the country if you have it and then lose it while being outside. You can't even come home. I remember when I was leading a missions trip with about 30 people to the nation of Uganda about 10 years ago, we were, we were traveling through Ethiopia on the way home, and when we traveled back then with a bunch of high school students, what we would do is we would hold their passports for them in a binder so that they wouldn't lose them, and we would give them to them as soon as they were about to get on the plane, and then retrieve them from them as soon as they got on the plane so that they would not lose their passports along the, the way. But I remember when we were on our way home in the Ethiopian airport, and we gave the passports to the students, they went through the gate, they got on the plane, we immediately sought to gather them again, but one student did not have her passport. She kind of came to me sheepishly and said, Joel, I can't, I can't find my passport. I said, what, what do you mean you can't find your passport? She said, I don't know, it's just gone, I can't find it anywhere. So I told a bunch of our team, start looking throughout the plane. And I went up to the front of the plane and I, I spoke to them and I said, I need to get off the plane to find a passport that may have been dropped along the way. You would have thought that I had just said that there was a bomb on that plane. They said, she doesn't have a passport. She must get off the plane right now. I said, no, 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 no. She has it. She just can't find it. I need to go outside and look for it. But they, they wouldn't listen. They said, she must get off. She, she does not belong here. She must get off of the plane. But I said, she just had it. You let her onto the plane because she had it. She said, they said, it doesn't matter. If she does not have it when she arrives in America, she will not be allowed off the plane and we will be blamed. She must get off now. She does not belong here. And so I grabbed my bag and she grabbed hers and I'm leaving our team behind getting ready to get off the plane and thinking about the phone call to her dad. Dad, I'm in Ethiopia with your daughter alone. Send help, please. It was going to be a bad situation, but just as we were getting ready to go, the passport fell out of her pillowcase and everything was fine. I can't tell you the relief that came over me in that moment, but I'll also never forget how serious they took that matter. She must get off. She does not belong here. Passports are important for travel. 
Friends, in the same way, Paul tells us today that holiness and godliness and righteousness in the Christian's life is important for our travel as well. Paul reminds us today that you and I are traveling to a heavenly inheritance. That because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are heading to a heavenly country, a heavenly home where there will be no more pain, where there will be no more sorrow, where there will be no more grief, no more shame over our mistakes. That is where we are headed because of Jesus and the work that he's done. But this morning, Paul reminds us that what qualifies us to be there, the passport that allows us to enter that land, is a life that has been and is being changed by the gospel. Now, we're going to see together this morning that the ultimate passport into heaven is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He is our hope. He is our only confidence. We are traveling to heaven because of him. But what we see here is that the personal pursuit of holiness, the the personal and the the corporate, the church-wide fight against sin in our midst is in some ways also the passport that allows us to receive the heavenly inheritance that has been promised. Our holiness, our purity, our righteousness matters as we prepare ourselves for heaven. The main idea of our sermon this morning is this. The gospel has cleansed us, and the gospel is preparing us for our hopeful future together. The gospel has cleansed us, and the gospel is preparing us for our hopeful future together. We have three points. Point number one, the dark stain of sin. Point number two, the cleansing power of grace. And point number three, our hopeful future together. Point number one, the dark stain of sin. In these verses, Paul ties together much of what he has been saying in chapters four, five, and six up until now. And he highlights the importance of what he is saying. And, and the, the, the important point is that holiness, righteousness, obedience matters in our lives. Godliness and and purity and obedience among God's people is not an optional thing, according to Paul. It is a necessary thing. He says a little sin, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Christians can't claim to love Jesus with their mouth and then live however they want to. And, And now, almost as a concluding reminder to us, Paul tells us why this is so important. He says, look at verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he goes into this long list of sins. Church, there are several things that we need to notice here. First of all, we need to notice that what Paul says here should be understood by every true Christian man and woman. He says, do you not know? And Paul uses that phrase, do you not know, throughout this letter because he is aware that the Corinthian Christians had already been told these things. They had already been told the importance of being distinct, of being different from the world. They knew that God's purpose for their life was to sanctify them, to make them holy even as he is holy. They knew that God They knew that God cannot be in the presence of sin and so so being careless about sin in their lives as Christians is an unacceptable thing. They knew that. Redeemer Fellowship, we know this, don't we? 
We know this. We, we know that sin of all kinds, no matter how big or small, it's a big deal. And that we should not be indifferent about sin before the Lord. We know that we should not presume upon God's grace and sin however we want, saying, he's a God of forgiveness, let me keep on sinning so that his forgiveness and grace may abound. No, we know better than that. But the second thing we should notice is the danger of being deceived. Paul says in verse 9, do not be deceived. Paul knows that it is an inherent danger in this life as Christians that we will presume upon God's grace. That we will want the promise and the joy of forgiveness and still convince ourselves that we can sin however we want to sin. Redeemer Fellowship, do not be deceived today. Do not listen to the countless voices in our day that ignore clear biblical teaching and that say that sleeping with your girlfriend is not a big deal. Or that a homosexual lifestyle is not a sin. Or that you shouldn't be concerned about drunkenness in your life. Don't listen to those voices. Church, our, our propensity to being deceived, is our propensity to convincing ourselves that these things are okay, is why we have so many warning passages in Scripture, passages like this. We have warning passages like this because to be careless about sin is to call into question the sincerity of our faith. Christian, listen. Indifference to holiness is an indictment to your faith. Indifference to holiness of, of any, of, uh, to any degree is an indictment to your faith. Indifference to holiness and to sin in your life is a way to actually diagnose that you still may need to come to Jesus for the first time. Don't be deceived. The third thing that we need to notice here is the actual list of sins. And we're going to talk about several of these in this list very specifically in their own messages over the next month. But, month, but listen to what Paul says. He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is an absolute statement, and it is a sobering warning. This is the stain of sin. Paul is stating in no uncertain terms this morning that if your life is marked by these things, if these things identify you more than the transforming power of God's grace, then you have very real reason to wonder whether you are truly a Christian or not. Sin destroys us. And sin condemns us. Sin hinders our ability to fellowship with God. Sin keeps us from living a fruitful and happy life before the Lord in this life and in the life to come. This is the stain of sin. But Paul says that the sexually immoral or the adulterer or those who practice homosexuality, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Church, you cannot be these things and get into the kingdom. Listen, you can't say, I'm an adulterer without any sense of repentance, without any sense of remorse, and still be accepted by God. You can't say, 
I am gay. This is my identity without a sense of repentance and remorse and desire to obey God and still be accepted by God. You cannot say I am a pornography addict and be indifferent to any change in that area and still be accepted by God. You cannot say I'm a drunkard or I'm a drug addict or I'm a gossiper or I am a thief or I am an idolater or I I love to worship money instead of God or I love to worship popularity instead of God or I love to worship my kids instead of God. You cannot say these things without conviction and still be accepted by God. Now listen, listen, you can say, you can say, I I struggle with adulterous thoughts and desires, but I'm submitting my life to King Jesus. You can say, I have always struggled with same-sex attraction or I am coming out of a homosexual lifestyle, or even my gender identity has never felt as clear to me as it does to other people, but I know what God's word says, and I trust God with my life, and I am seeking, I am struggling by God's grace to live for him. You can say, I struggle with the temptation of pornography, but I know that the gospel has and is freeing me, and I'm never going to stop fighting for purity in my life. You can say, even as they say in an AA group, I'm an addict, or rather, I am inclined towards addiction, but I'm going to live a sober life by God's grace. Being a Christian, having entrance into God's kingdom does not mean that we don't struggle in these things. It doesn't. We will struggle in in, in very real ways, but it does mean that we don't identify with them, and we certainly don't give ourselves over to them without care or thought or conviction. No, every Christian man and woman in this room is going to be plagued by these struggles time and time again from now until they get to heaven. But we must not settle into them, Redeemer Fellowship. We must fight. We must confess them when they rise up. We must labor by God's grace to put them to death in our lives. Why? Because our confession and our very hatred of these sins, our laboring to be holy is the proof of what God has already done for us. The, the fight itself, and hopefully by His grace, the even incremental victory in our lives is the evidence that we are alive in Him, that He has washed us and made us clean. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, the cleansing power of grace. Church, even as we try to to wisely and carefully talk about these things today and over the next month, it, it needs to be said that the plain reading of this text is it feels very harsh. Paul simply says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it is a warning. And our response should be sober fear. Our response should be to ask, well then, who will inherit the kingdom of God? Because if this is an absolute statement, which it is, and if according to Romans chapter 3, Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. If all of us are unrighteous, which we are, and the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, then what hope do we have? Church, our unrighteousness condemns us. Sin corrupts and sin defiles. The stain of sin runs deep. I wonder what what sin in your life you are most aware of today. I wonder what immorality, I wonder what lust, I wonder what adulterous actions or adulterous thoughts you have not resisted in your mind, either in the last week or 
years ago. I wonder how much time you have spent thinking about what it would like to be intimate with that person who is not your spouse. I wonder what greed and what expressions of selfishness you have tolerated in your soul. I wonder how you have worshipped yourself this week instead of God. I wonder how, how deeply you have let your fleshly desires rule your heart to the exclusion of God and to the exclusion of others that you are called to love but who you have used and manipulated as a way to serve yourself this week. I wonder how deeply you feel the stain of sin in your life. You know, I often talk to people in my office who because of their struggle with sin or because of other people's gross sin against them, they say that they are always feeling unclean. They're always fighting to to experience that, that, that knowledge of being clean. They, they take multiple showers a day in order to make themselves feel better. They, they can't see any good in themselves. They, they're, they're aware of being defiled. They, they express feelings of being broken, of being unlovable, of God not wanting anything to do with them because of their sinfulness or because of their feelings of, of shame from other people's sins against them. The stain of sinfulness runs so deep and as we feel and as we see the stain of sin in our lives, it can make us cringe as we read verse 9. If the unrighteous, if those stained by sin will not inherit the kingdom of God, church, who will? Is heaven going to be empty and all of hell bursting at the seams? Who will be a part of God's kingdom? Certainly not you, certainly not me, if it's up to our own righteousness. Because we're dirty and our dirtiness reminds us of how we cannot approach the holiness of God. Verse 9. Verse 9 reminds us of the bad news of God's word. This is bad news. We are condemned in our sin, there is no hope for humanity because humanity is unrighteous and the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. But what happens if there is a righteous person? And what happens if that righteous person is also the eternal God himself? What happens if the eternally righteous God becomes a human in order to represent unrighteous humanity? What happens if this eternally righteous God who became a man stands as our representative and bears the punishment that we deserved? What happens if this eternally righteous God who became a man, who is Christ Jesus, stands as our representative and bears our punishment for us and thereby removes the stain of sin from us by placing it on himself? What happens if this eternally righteous God-man, Jesus Christ, stands in our place, not only removes the stain, but also takes his righteousness and puts it on us? What happens if the eternally righteous God finds a way to take unrighteous humanity and to put his umbrella of righteousness over them? What happens then? Here's what happens. Salvation happens. Acceptance happens. Access into God's kingdom happens. Church, verse 11 happens. Read it with me. Look at what it says. Paul says, and such were some of you. We were unrighteous, 
But Paul says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Church, rejoice with me over those words today. Such were some of you. We could sing a long time about those words today. Paul does not say, such are some of you. He could. He could say such are some of you because you and I still have sin in our lives. We are still impure. We are still selfish. We are still immoral. We still sin in many, many ways. Paul very easily could have said such are some of you, but he doesn't. He says such were some of you. Why? Because the work of Jesus on that cross and through his gospel was so strong. It was so complete. It was so powerful it was so purifying and so cleansing that when God looks at you now he does not see an adulterer he does not see an idolater he does not look and see a thief or a swindler he does not look at us as unclean or as unrighteous but as righteous and as perfectly clean such were some of you but you were washed these verses speak to the theological category of expiation. Have you ever heard that word, expiation? That through the work of God in the gospel, our sins have been expiated. They have been expunged from our account. In God's eyes, you have been washed. And there's not even a spot of stain left on your account. Not even a spot. You are clean. John Frame says this, he says, By expiation, Jesus wiped our slate clean. We have nothing to fear from God. God forgives our sins fully and completely, taking them as far from us as the east is from the west. Amen. Church, have you ever used a magic eraser? I swear that there is sorcery involved in those things. A magic eraser removes things that seemed permanent. I I don't know how it works, but you can have what seems like a permanent marker or dark stain, and you can scrub it, you can scratch it, you can do everything to try to remove that stain, but nothing works. Until you use that magic eraser, it just wipes away. It's craziness. Friends, that is what the gospel does for us. We who seek to scrub our lives clean by our good living... We who try to scratch out our sinful history and ignore our past. We who try to shower three times a day to remove the feelings of shame. We try so hard to get clean, but all we need is the cleansing blood of Jesus. All we need is his sacrifice on our behalf. And what happens? We are immediately clean in his sight. It's not like that you you can still see the outline of the stain. No, you are wiped clean. One of my all-time favorite passages in God's Word is Hebrews chapter 9, where the writer is describing the old covenant sacrificial system, and he talks about how the blood of the bulls and the goats was spilt and and shared in order to, to purify the flesh, meaning in order to purify us for a little while. It was a, a reminder of God's desire to ultimately forgive. But the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins, he says. But then he says these words, if those things, the blood of bulls and goats, purify for the flesh, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Listen, how much more will his blood purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more? This is the cleansing power of God's grace. It, it does not just cover one or two sins. It does not just make you pure and clean for a day or for a month or for a year. But the purifying, expiating blood of Christ purifies your conscience from all dead works to serve the living God. Everything you've done, you don't need to feel that weighing on your conscience because his blood has taken it away. As far as the east is from the west, it removes guilt and shame from our minds. We no longer live in the identity of our sin and shame and our many mistakes. We live as new creations in Christ. We live as those washed by the blood of the Lamb. It's the cleansing power of grace. Listen, uh, some of you need to hear this in a particular way today. Some of you have, have lived this week, maybe even more than this week. Maybe you have lived this past season, however long that is. You have lived more aware of your history, more aware of your mistakes, more aware of the darkness in your past more aware of your history than you are of the present reality of forgiveness in Christ. Christian, rejoice with me this morning that his blood washes you clean. He takes away every evidence of your sin before God. When he looks at you, he doesn't say, oh, there's, there's Kim, and then look at all that past behind her. Oh, there's Joe, look, look at what follows him. No, he sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and he loves you. Listen, if you're not a Christian today, if you've never put your faith in Jesus and your conscience is weighing on you, you look back over the last week, maybe even longer, maybe you look back over the last year and you're like, man, I have screwed up. I, I've done some pretty, pretty bad stuff. I've hurt people. I've, I've, I've made some foolish mistakes. If you don't know what it is to have a clean conscience, <laughs> come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and be washed by his blood. Today, confess your sins, ask for his, his forgiveness, and receive the joy of new life in him. Receive the joy of a new life in him now and the joy of a hopeful future before you. And that brings us to our third point, point number three, our hopeful future together. So the, the clear implications of this text is that God has saved us from our unrighteousness and that he has made us righteousness through Christ so that we can enter into the kingdom of God. And, and in the context of everything that Paul is saying before and after these verses, the, the purposes of these verses is to remind us that we should live righteous lives here and now, that we should not act like the world around us, right? We've talked about this. The Corinthian Christians had thought that their identity in Jesus enabled them to just blend into the culture around them. They thought that because they were positionally righteous before God, that practical righteousness and holiness didn't matter today. And Paul is wanting to clarify in no uncertain terms. He says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says neither will you if you live like them. Because to live like them is to reveal that you have not ultimately been cleansed. But if you have been cleansed, then you should live differently from them. 
Listen to these words from Gordon Fee. He says, this is one of the more important theological statements in the entire epistle. Paul's concern is singular. Your own conversion, affected by God through the work of Christ and the Spirit, is what has removed you from being among the wicked who will not inherit the kingdom. By implication, there is an inherent imperative. Therefore, live out this new life in Christ and stop being like the wicked. This is the implicit application of these verses. This is Paul's concern. Do not live like the world. Even as he will say in just a few verses, flee from sin. Be pure, he will say. Fight division, he will say. Pursue holiness of all kinds, he will say. Cultivate a godly marriage, he will say. Use your singleness for God's glory, he will say. Go to church every week, he will say. Pursue unity together. He says throughout this letter, do the hard work of being godly. All, all of that is what 1 Corinthians is about. But maybe that concerns you today. Maybe you want to throw the legalism card real fast and say, hey, I, I thought the gospel was all about grace. That our salvation is not about our obedience, but rather believing in Christ. I thought that all that we needed to do to be saved was to believe in him and in him alone. And so can we stop talking about all of this obedience that is needed on our part? Well, friends, all of that is partly true. The gospel is as simple as believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. The, the thief on the cross himself believed in Jesus, and he never had a chance to live out the gospel in lots of practical ways, but he was still fully saved and accepted. The gospel is as simple as believing in Jesus, but if we have believed in Jesus, we will pursue his righteousness together. James chapter 2 says that faith Without work, faith without obedience, faith without the pursuit of righteousness is dead faith. And his point is to say, again, you can't claim to be a Christian and live however you want to live. No, if your faith is real, it will lead to righteous obedience in your life. Redeemer Fellowship, listen, oftentimes we resist hard conversations about obedience and holiness because it makes us feel self-conscious and guilty. We don't want our assurance of salvation to be based on our performance. And so we say, let's not talk about our sin and our need for obedience too much. Let's just talk about the confidence that we have in Jesus. But friends, listen, the purpose of a warning text like this is not to steal assurance from you, but rather to increase your assurance, to increase the confidence of your faith. The, the purpose of the sex is not to make us constantly fearful about the future and whether we're obeying enough or not, but rather to give us sincere hope and confidence about what God is doing in our lives. Listen to Tom Schreiner. He says, such warnings do not quench assurance, but are the pathway to it. For those who pay heed to the warnings gain greater confidence of obtaining the kingdom inheritance. The warnings become the means by which believers avoid committing apostasy. Brothers and sisters, as, as you pursue righteousness in your life, you will gain greater confidence about your future because you will be reminded of how active King Jesus really is in your life. It's actually when you become indifferent to holiness and indifferent to the presence of sin and that you begin to say it's not a big deal, that is when we should grow concerned about our salvation. But this warning 
is intended to instill greater confidence in us about our future. As we obey, our confidence in Jesus increases. As we obey, our assurance grows. As we obey, the kingdom of God becomes even more certain before us because there's even more evidence that he is at work within us. And Paul wants our confidence to grow. I love how Paul speaks of the Trinity in these verses. He says, you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He is not calling our salvation and our assurance into question for a moment. He is seeking to instill all kinds of assurance and confidence in us. This is God's work and he will bring it to completion. Redeemer Fellowship, we can and we should be obedient Christians because the triune God has saved us. We can fight sin today and tomorrow because the triune God has redeemed us. The triune God has washed us from our guilt. He has justified us by declaring us righteous in his son. And he has sanctified us. He has set apart us apart for godly purposes. And so because of this, fighting sin in our lives will not bring lesser assurance, but greater assurance. It will remind us of how we have been washed and how God is preparing a holy people for himself. Do you know what this is like? It's kind of like a passport. Passports enable us to travel from one country to another. They give us access into different kingdoms. Friends, what is our passport? Jesus is our passport. He is our access. The work that he has done on the cross is our only confidence. When we get to heaven and God says, hey, can I see your passport? What are we going to do? We're going to point at Jesus and say it's all him. He did it all. My faith was in him. I trusted in him. I love him still. He is my passport. But do you know when you travel internationally and when you go through customs and they check your passport every time, do you know how each country puts a stamp on your passport saying that it is valid? If you were to look at my passport, you would see a stamp from Brazil, a stamp from Haiti, a stamp from Uganda, a stamp from Zambia and Ethiopia and other places. And people love to just cover, fill their passports with new stamps from new places. They love to look back and they love to say, look at all the places my passport has taken me. Well, friends, that is kind of like what it will be like when we get to heaven. Our passport is Jesus. But hopefully our passport will be stamped with all kinds of practical obedience from our lives that prove the validity of our faith in him. Evidence of the sincerity of our faith. By God's grace, God will look at me and he will say, yes, your faith was in Jesus and that was enough. Amen, Joel. But look at your life. Look at all those stamps of practical holiness that prove that it was real. Not only was your faith in Jesus in word, but your faith led to godliness. Yes, Joel, look there. I see it. The stamp of, of, of Joel confessing sin to his wife. Yes, look, on that page, look, there's the stamp of Joel resisting lust in his heart. Yes, look, there's the stamp of Joel being courageous to share his faith. Yes, look, there's the stamp of Joel being truthful and honest in his dealings with the world. Yes, look, on that page, there's the stamp of Joel being an active member of the local church and growing in godliness day by day. Yes, look, there's the stamp of Joel fighting for unity even when it's hard, even when it's really hard. Yes, look, there's the stamp of Joel asking for forgiveness when he did wrong and there's the stamp of Joel granting forgiveness when others did wrong against him. 
Church, I want my passport, I want your passport to be covered with these stamps. I want our faith in Jesus to be stamped with practical holiness of every kind. Amen? Just like we enjoy looking at our passports and considering all the places we have gone, listen, so our ongoing pursuit of holiness will instill greater and greater confidence that our passport, our faith in Jesus is valid. And so if you are discouraged this morning about how far you still have to go in your pursuit of holiness, let me encourage you to consider the stamps that are already on your passport. You believed in Jesus. That's a stamp in and of itself. God enabled you to do that. You've committed your life to follow him. Maybe you have taken the first step of obedience by being baptized. Maybe you have read your Bible more this past year than the year before, even by just a little bit. Maybe you are not giving up in your fight against impurity. These are all stamps of God's grace in your life, and we should celebrate them loudly and gain confidence from them. Receive encouragement, church, when you consider the different places that your faith in Christ has already taken you. The letter of 1 Corinthians should make us joyfully eager to become more holy together. Let's live out our salvation together, amen? Let's cover our lives with stamps of his holiness. And let's get super practical with it. Let's, let's have hard conversations together. Let's, let's take that member of our fellowship group out to coffee and say, hey, where do you see sin in my life? Let's get super practical and say to that person, hey, when you spoke to your wife this way, it seemed like it lacked love. Let's be honest about our struggle with temptation. Let's, let's get gritty in this pursuit of Christ and let's stamp our lives with evidence of his grace over and over and over again. Amen? Church, would you please stand with me?